Welcome to Cancer Conference Update and Commentary on Key Presentations from the 2009 ASCO meeting in Orlando. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. To begin, Dr. Charles Blanke comments on data presented in GI cancers, beginning with a very surprising paper on the use of trastuzumab in gastric cancer. Certainly the most important thing that emerged from the gastric presentations was the TOGA trial. As you well know, it was a phase three study of trastuzumab plus so-called standard chemotherapy as frontline treatment for EGFR2 or HER2 positive advanced gastric cancer. And it was presented by Van Kutsum and his group. And they basically gave a little bit of background that there's no standard treatment, but a lot of people use sort of fluoropyrimidine platinum doublets. We really haven't moved the bar very much in recent decades. And it's known that some tumors are HER2 positive. Obviously, trastuzumab works in breast cancer. And there's some preclinical gastric cancer data as well that it might be an effective agent. So the concept is actually not new. It's been floating around to test it for at least 15 years that I know of. But this group actually pulled it off. Well, also the thing that really surprised me was, you know, I kind of figured or seemed that this was very uncommon But according to them, it was 22% of tumors were HER2 positive. That's like breast cancer. That's exactly right. In fact, that's what killed the trial proposals about a decade ago, is people did not predict that high a number. Now, there is one caveat. You probably noticed that there was a differential expression of HER2 depending on the type of gastric cancer. And at ASCO, somebody raised the question, as to whether the proportions of diffuse and intestinal were different in the North America, and particularly in the U.S., and they raised the possibility that the percent of HER2-positive tumors in the U.S. might actually be quite a bit lower. And I don't think we know the answer to that, a very important critique. Yeah, totally. I guess when you think about the epidemiology of gastric cancer, and these patients were from where, Europe? So, yeah, let me try and tell you exactly where the trial was conducted, but it was basically the Belgium group conducting it, so the answer has to be yes. Right. So, yeah, actually, 142 centers, 24 countries, Asia, Australia, Europe, Latin America, South Africa, but no North America. But not North America, and that's the key. Okay, so I think that's good. Hopefully somebody's working on figuring this out for people in North America, but can you summarize the bottom line of what they looked at and found? Yeah, so the bottom line is they compared chemotherapy with or without trastumumab. Their primary endpoint was overall survival, And there was a statistically and clinically meaningful improvement in overall survival from about 11 to 14 months. Everything else went along with that in terms of tumor response rate, progression-free survival, and they really didn't find any major toxicity issues, including cardiac. So they basically feel that this is a standard of care for HER2-positive gastric cancer now. And the chemo? The chemo actually was a bit of a dealer's choice but essentially it was a fluoropyrimidine with a cisplatinum. And they could use capecitabine if they wanted, but that was the basic backbone. So, you know, you had an impact on survival, and I guess around 24, 25%. As you say, response rate, I mean, all the stuff that you normally look for and, you know, not inconsequential without really any observable problems. I mean, is it time to start doing this? Yes. Unless we find out that the rate, as we talked about in North America, is 6% or something like that. But if you have, I mean, for example, are you sending tumors for HER2 testing now? Well, I will tell you that our tumor group, our GI tumor group, met yesterday to talk about this possibility. It's a little bit more complicated in Canada, as you can imagine. Right, right. But I can tell you that if I were in the U.S., I would be doing this right now. 
And if they were HER2 positive, you would be using trastuzumab? Yes, I would. And how, how you get it paid for? How was it used in terms of, you know, was it the usual chemo trastuzumab and then followed by trastuzumab alone? They basically gave the trastuzumab until progressive disease, so that is the correct But what answer. about the chemo? The chemotherapy, they actually gave it for six cycles. And then so they kept the a, trastuzumab going, assuming they... Yeah, it's a more European way of doing things than we tend to do in the States. So you guys get to get involved with all the stuff that the breast cancer people are dealing with in terms of, you know, metastatic or 2 positive disease. Do you continue therapy, switch chemo? What about the testing? It's Right. So, you know, basically they used IHC-3 or fish positive. Yep. It's a little bit different than we might do in breast. You certainly know more about that than I do. No, I mean, IHC or fish positive, that's the breast story, too. But, you know, there's different standards within those two subgroups. To be honest, I think the really big area that needs to be tested now is adjuvant, just like with breast. Yeah. That, I think there'll be a huge impact on a relatively small population. Yeah, that's really interesting thought. Is that being done? They have talked about proposals, but I don't know of any group that is currently doing it right now, and certainly not in the States. So I guess this is pretty new news. I think I saw a press release a few months ago, but this is pretty hot off the press, I guess. That's exactly right. And it was a relatively well-kept secret, unlike the plenary colon trial that we're going to talk about. Okay. So yeah, let's flip over then to colon and rectal cancer, because a lot did happen with that. And I guess the first most prominent thing was the much-anticipated mm. NSABP CO8 adjuvant bevacizumab Fulfax presentation by Norm Walmark. Yes, and the discussion by Lee Ellis at the plenary session. I would rate this as the most eagerly awaited and the most disappointing abstract in years. Well, you should have been at our symposium the night after that because I came away with some optimism about it. But why don't we go through with it and we'll let the listeners decide... Very reasonable. So do you want to explain what he showed? Sure. So very quickly, this is a trial in stage 2 and stage 3 patients, so it wasn't just node positive, but it was a very simple randomization after complete resection to full FOX6 for six months with or without bevacizumab for a full year. So that by itself was very, very controversial at the time, as you may remember. They were looking for a 25% decrease in event rates, with the primary endpoint being disease-free survival, usual well-balanced groups and demographics. And the bottom line was there was no difference in disease-free survival. It was 77% at three years versus 76% for chemotherapy alone with a p-value of 0.15. Yeah, but I mean, that was not the whole story there. But that was not the whole story. Okay, so go into the other part in terms of relapse up to three years. Well, it wasn't even up to three years. So Dr. Walmark actually blew up the curves, and what you could see is a gigantic separation between the curves during the chemotherapy and certainly for the first year. And then he actually presented the serial hazard ratios, And so during the first year, the hazard ratio was 0.6, so there was a 40% reduction in events. That was while they were on the BEV. That's right, on the BEV, but not necessarily on the chemo, but definitely on the BEV. By 1.5 years, it was still 0.74, and it actually remained statistically significant up until year 2.5. And after that, the curves essentially came together shortly after three years. So he raised a strong possibility in his mind that there is a transient effect of bevacizumab. First of all, it was justified to give it for a year because they took a lot of flack over that. And secondly, that maybe, while it should not be standard of care in practice, clinical trials should look at giving it for a longer duration. 
which is going to be a bit of a tough sell. Well, yeah, I mean, and Lee Ellis talked, you know, about the potential risks of long-term therapy, et cetera, and maybe there never even will be a trial because, you know, Norm sort of fought this out with the faculty at our meeting the night afterwards, and they weren't too supportive, and it sounds like you're not. I think it's actually very problematic to give somebody who's potentially cured already six months of chemo and then tell them they may wind up on Bev for who knows what it is, three years, five years, lifetime? I mean, I don't know. My take on it was more biology and paradigm that maybe it's not going to be bevacizumab. Maybe it's something else that's anti-angiogenic or anti-VEGF. Maybe it's a pill that, you know, in breast cancer, we've seen this for a long time. You know, we have five versus 10-year trials of aromatase inhibitors. Absolutely true. And if we had a pill that wasn't an every three-week injection, it would be a lot easier to swallow, no pun intended. Well, but I mean, to me, I see this as optimism for the future research-wise as opposed to a flat-out negative study. At least there's a clue there that maybe we can do something. The only comment I would make is Lee presented a lot of complicated biology suggesting that the BEV was truly just pushing off time to recurrence rather than increasing the cure rate. And that's a big deal because even in breast cancer where we do give these drugs for five to 10 years, they do feel, you can again explain this better than I can, that it increases the actual cure rate. So I think it might be a different disease. It could be. But I think the other thing is in terms of, as I was watching, that one curve where you see these hazard rates that you know yes. follow... I was thinking to myself about all the controversy in advanced colon cancer about axle growth, bright study, et cetera, yep. continuation yep. of bevel and progression, yep. and the question of do you need some kind of continuous anti-angiogenic effect, in this case, bevacizumab. But to me, looking at the CO8 stuff kind of ties into that concept. Well, here's what I would say. So Avant is another trial that is looking at this with a capecitabine-based chemo or 5-FU, but with oxaly and Bev. If it's stone-cold negative, I think the concept is dead. But, I mean, I, let's say it shows the same thing. But you, if it shows the same thing, I think there is strong rationale for further exploration or, as you pointed out, maybe some other similar but different class of drugs will have a more profound effect. I mean, I'd say we need some help in terms of adjuvant therapy of colon cancer. And yes. I mean, what's the next study? Well, but I do want to throw out the possibility that 0147, which yeah, looks totally, at cetuximab. totally. Cetuximab is a better agent than BEV only in that it has an actual single-agent response rate. At least some of us believe it may increase the cytotoxicity of the chemo, and that may be a flat-out positive study, no, or it may not. Yeah, totally, particularly with the KRAS thing, and hopefully that study will accrue faster. I mean, that study needs to get done. Yes, I would agree. There's been a couple of setbacks regarding some potential toxicity in the elderly and things like that. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Hmm. Nothing very specific, but it shut the study down for a while. Really? What kind of toxicity? It was mixed. It was no single toxicity, but there was clearly a higher rate of serious toxicity that scared people. With cetuximab in older people? Correct. And it wasn't just dermatologic? No, 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 no. It was way beyond dermatologic. Okay. So let's go to the paper that you and I talked about in the gym, in the hotel, (laughs) (laughs) when adjoining Stairmasters, and we argued about that one too, which is a paper by Kerr looking at a RT-PCR sort of oncotype thing in colon cancer. This was a fabulous paper, absolutely meritorious of the podium, and ultimately very disappointing. So basically, Kerr's goal, in my opinion. Maybe, let me rephrase that. Disappointing for now, encouraging for the future. I'm encouraged now, but we'll see. All right. Let's talk about it. The goal of this, in my mind, was to come up with something that's similar to oncotype DX in breast cancer. To number one, identify a group of patients in stage two node negative colon cancer that number one, have a very low risk of recurrence, and number two, to try and figure out what the effect of chemotherapy is in those patients and the others. 
And so in brief, they looked at some genes they thought would be predictive of risk of recurrence. And they looked at them through a series of development studies and then validated them through the very large Quasar study, which was quick and simple and reliable. And I guess um, the development went through the NSABP again. That is correct. Like the breast did. They used a number of trials like CO1, 2, 4, and 6, but for the bottom line. And the bottom line is they were able to come up with what was basically a risk scale. They could assign points to the individual patient. And they found out that the risk of recurrence really was higher in the patients who had high recurrence risk scores. And so they were able to basically figure out who, after surgery alone, had a higher risk of recurrence. The problem is they couldn't really prove that chemotherapy made a differential difference in any of those groups. And unfortunately, or not, chemotherapy actually helped about the same amount in each of those three groups. So even in the low-risk group, you could basically show that there's a chemotherapy benefit. But numerically, and that's, I think, what you and I may have debated a little bit, since the overall percentage is so low to begin with, and now we're taking a fraction of patients within that group, I don't think we've made any progress over the fact that we don't know what to do with stage two patients to begin with. Well, see, that's where I disagree, because I think you guys in colon cancer have been like around 1990 breast cancer, where we didn't really have the data to be able to tell people in breast cancer with no negative tumors really what their risk is and what their risk is with chemo. I don't really think you had those data until this paper came out. And now you that sort of do. Now you do. So and that's yeah, important. I mean, it's not like it's oncotype in breast, but that's huge. Now you have numbers to give patients. It's big. And I agree with you because, as you know, I'm a gistologist. And we have a little table that I carry around in my wallet where I plug in tumor size, mitotic rate, and location, and I give them a flat-out number of their risk of recurrence, and patients love it. It's important for doctors and patients. And I know because we've surveyed docs and we survey patients that right now the docs in practice up to now have not been confident of giving numbers to a patient who has stage 2 disease without high-risk features. Absolutely. And now you've got some numbers to give them. You know, we had LOH and we had chromosome 18 and we had MSI and it was crummy. And you're absolutely right. And that is a very important finding of this paper. It's just that it did not deliver on everything we hoped for, which is not the paper's fault, obviously. Yeah, but and the other thing is you all have capecitabine by itself, whereas breast cancer has got either AC or TC, I mean, major chemotherapy. To me, that's a whole other ballgame. When you talk about saying to a patient, listen, you know, we think there's going to be about a 3% improvement in your chance of staying relapse-free if you take this pill. I mean, that's a decent decision. I don't know. I don't disagree. I mean, that's the way I see it. I don't know. Maybe I'm not seeing it right. No, you're seeing it right. I think, though, it would have been nice if we found out that not only do low-risk people have a low risk of recurring, but the chemotherapy really doesn't make a big difference so we could completely exclude them from treatment. And like you say, that might happen in the future. And if you think back to Oncotype, the first presentation soon Paik did, they didn't have that chemo data. So anyhow, I thought it was pretty good. It was a great paper. There's no denying that. I want to ask you about the next paper that came out of Memorial. So you're talking about the outcome of a primary tumor resection in patients who have synchronous metastases. Exactly. This has been a hot topic, actually, since I was a fellow. In the old days, again, it was just standard treatment to take the primary out unless the patient was essentially near death. And then Vanderbilt University is the first, to my knowledge, that started questioning, why are we doing this? Patients die of metastatic disease. The counter-argument is, well, they're going to obstruct or bleed, they're going to be on chemo, you're going to do surgery in a horrible setting, and they're going to die of increased surgical toxicity. So there were actually a couple papers at ASCO this year, there have been previous papers, and they've all essentially shown the same thing. 
if you're asymptomatic in terms of the primary to start, it's not grossly bleeding, it's not obstructing, you basically don't get into trouble at least 90 to 93% of the time if you go immediately to best systemic therapy. And this, of course, is also the basis for the NSABP Phase two study. I'm not sure where they are. They were only looking for about 90 patients also, really looking at the exact same question. Correct. It's actually been proposed as a Phase three by ACASOG, and for some reason it had difficulties moving forward. But there have been a number now of retrospective studies, at least four that I know of, that have come up with exactly the same conclusion. And I guess the other thing was that the few patients who did have surgery seemed to do pretty well, like what you would expect. I guess by observing them and giving them a chemo, et cetera, or chemo, BEV, that they still did well when they had to go to surgery. And I think it's actually a critically important takeaway point. They didn't die on the table. They didn't die of neutropenic sepsis because of a wound complication in the setting of their chemotherapy. So it does hint that if they do need to go to surgery, you should go to surgery. The last colon paper was a really interesting study by Axel Grothy looking at one of the topics he's done a lot of work on, which is neurotoxicity from oxaliplatinum, calcium, magnesium. Yeah, so again, a paper came out a few years ago suggesting that giving calcium and magnesium could markedly decrease the neurotoxicity of oxaliplatin. Many of us started using it in the metastatic setting, but we weren't sure about its effect on tumor protection in the usual, so it wasn't being done adjuvantly. That became part of a trial by Howard Hoxter, to look at it in a more thorough fashion. And that trial closed early when basically on radiographs, it looked like there really was some harm being done to patients. That group actually went back later and proved that it was not even the case on that trial, let alone other trials. Axel Grothy's group, which was the NCCTG, basically did a trial where patients were getting full FOX and they either got placebo or calcium magnesium. And the primary endpoint was two plus neurotoxicity. Because we're not really good as physicians at gauging neurotoxicity, it also included patient questionnaires and some other assessments. Now, this trial also suffered by virtue of the other trial concept having to close early in the question of whether we're hurting patients. So it actually only wound up with 104 out of the planned 300 patients. But despite having very small numbers, it did show a basically dramatic decrease in chronic neurotoxicity. It did not show any major problems in terms of side effects from the calcium-magnesium. And for reasons I can't explain, they looked at acute symptoms, and it didn't make a big difference with the sole exception of a decreased acute muscle cramps as well. As far as I know, they didn't comment upon recurrence rates and whether this made a difference, again, in terms of tumor protection. But in talking to other experts, no one is worried about that anymore. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't see that here. But I thought it was really interesting, the differential effect. There's been a lot of speculation about it. And, and as you said, I guess it was the cold intolerance wasn't affected, although I'm not sure how often that really is a huge problem. But the, You know, it really is. It's is surprising it? the ways it manifests. Well, there's two ways in my experience. Number one, people go outside in a cold day and they get the laryngospasm, which is cold-induced. Right, wear a scarf right. Underneath. The other way, and this is kind of bizarre, but it's really true, patients get nauseated, and so they reach into the fridge for a Coke. Right. And when they touch the can, they get this bolt of lightning up their arms. That really bothers patients. Right. I guess down in Miami, we're more worried about air conditioning than <laughs> yeah, cold Yeah, I'd like to so we, lean on the air conditioning. You're probably okay. <laughs> Anyhow, but the other thing was this thing about the muscle cramps. Do you think that's on the radar of most people? Because I don't know that I've heard about that. That's I don't, because if you look at the actual percentage of people that have it, it's... I guess it was, I mean, a huge difference. It was like 6 versus 23%. But I mean, but what is it? It's an acute neurotoxicity? 
But it's neuromuscular is the way I would explain it since they're all related. And it's during the infusion? Yeah, it's basically, it really is acute. I have seen patients who've had it, you know, basically within the day or two as well. What do they actually say? They get charley horses. In their legs, arms, or what? I've seen it as sort of calf cramps. Wow, And maybe forearm cramps as well. Huh. So I tend to see it, I guess, in the muscles, the small muscles that are used more, but I'm not sure there's any scientific basis or validity to that claim. Right. So that's interesting. I wonder if, I mean, I guess we're trying to look at 6 versus 12 in terms of adjuvant cycles, but if it turns out that you want to get people through longer therapy, I guess this is pretty important. You're right. I think it was unrecognized for its overall importance because it has profound impact in the metastatic setting, and it has a fairly profound impact in the adjuvant setting if it turns out we can't give short-course chemo. Interesting. What about the two papers on rectal cancer? Oh, bad year for rectal cancer, in my opinion. I was surprised. This was not a shocker the way that I thought CO8 was, but it was shocking. And I'll just cut to the chase. These were two different trials that looked at various oxaliplatin fluoroperimidine-based regimens with irradiation. And the bottom line is oxaliplatin did not seem to be acting as a radiosensitizer. The rates of pathologic CR were virtually identical. Basically, every single outcome they could look at, like positive margins, and anywhere where you think that increased local control would make a difference, did not show any benefit for oxaliplatin. The one rather bizarre thing that emerged out of the ACCORD study was when the surgeons looked around the belly they saw fewer patients with metastases on oxaliplatin. That was, as far as I know, not pre-planned. It wasn't even in a study that they should do this. Of course, it's standard of care. And all it hints to me, because they did try and give full systemic dose of oxaliplatin, is that oxaliplatin is still pretty good with 5-FU on distant metastases. So that's no big shocker. But I'm not sure that we have to give it during the RT to make that happen. You could sandwich it before and after by giving full FOX. How do you think these two papers will impact, if at all, the NSABP RO4 study that's also studying this question? There's basically a lot of trials at ASCO this year, including CO8, which we talked about before, have profound potential impact on ongoing trials. And I think this all has to be basically discussed. The question is, how definitive are these? What do you think? I think these are pretty definitive. Okay, well, I wouldn't want to go on a trial that had an oxaliplatin arm during RT, to be very honest. Yeah, well, that is disappointing. Let's talk a little bit about pancreatic cancer because mm-hmm. it's still a mighty bad disease, but <laughs> I thought these three papers were pretty interesting. Beginning they were. With- so the first paper was basically a paper that looked at NAB paclitaxel, which is basically one of these albumin-bound, cremophore-free formulations that should be a lot better tolerated. And basically, it was just a phase one, two trial of actually giving it. And then it actually looked at spark overexpression. Now, this was given with GEM, though. So that is correct. So a couple of things emerged, I think, of great interest. Number one, the rate of responses was astronomically high, almost unbelievably high, in my opinion, sort of across the board. And then as you would predict, in addition, it looked like spark status did actually correlate with potential outcome. And then finally, the NAB paclitoxol was really, really well tolerated. I don't think that right now it would become a standard of care combination, but I certainly would be very interested in studying it further if I were this group. Right. And Dan Van Hoff, who presented these findings, you know, has really taken a leadership role in terms of translational work. Yes. But I mean, I don't know that I've seen as interesting data in terms of Spark 
Obviously, there's a lot of stuff being done in breast. There's also in lung cancer. But could you go through the numbers in terms of the response rate with or without SPARC and overall? I could. So basically, looking at the response evaluation, they looked at both PET scans and they looked at CT scans. So if we basically just look at CT scans, there were actually complete remissions, which is obviously virtually unheard of in the single digits. But the confirmed response rate was 40%, essentially. And the stable disease rate for more than four months, or at least four months, was another 26%. Only one out of five patients had progressive disease. And that is just an astronomically high rate of response in a so-called tumor control. Now, is this just spark positive, all the patients? I think it's all comers, and then they obviously did their retrospective analysis as well. So what about in spark positive spark negative tumors? So they did that in kind of a funny way. Fairly small numbers actually had spark status available, but they looked at the fraction of patients responding if they had spark and at least by one of their measures it may have been as high as 80% versus versus 36% for those who were spark negative and the p value was 0.03 so they felt it was a real difference. What do you know about SPARC and how it relates to NAB? Just that all the studies that have been done, at least in pancreas that I know of, have always tied the two together based on the actual pathway. Can you explain what SPARC is and why it might correlate with NAB? Yeah, basically SPARC is secreted protein acid rich in cysteine. And my understanding of it is, as you well know, we're always looking at factors of the tumor cell that might be important but I think SPARC is also potentially very important in the surrounding stroma. And stromal involvement with cancer is felt to be particularly important in pancreatic cancer. What about the stuff they presented on CA199? Can you describe that and say what you thought about it? Yeah, I can definitely say that. So basically they found out that CA199 would go down almost immediately after treatment initiation. And they basically found that... Patients who had a large decrease in CA199 had a median survival of a year, basically, and those who didn't had a median survival of six months. So if we accept the fact that, number one, is a surrogate marker for survival, and then, number two, that it happens right away, you could, in theory, if you could exclude people who were not going to be responders, use that as a way to tell whether you should change treatment or not. I'm not sure it's sensitive enough for that yet, but it's very encouraging. Now, getting back to Spark, is that a reliable test? I guess it's IHC. Do you think that maybe these kinds of data are going to lead to it actually being done in clinical practice? Not yet. Absolutely not yet. I think the numbers were too small, and we don't know enough about the testing, but I definitely think it's worthy of further exploration. What do we know about taxanes and pancreatic cancer, paclitaxel, for example? So actually, they've been proposed as an alternative to 5-FU and GEM, and actually this was much more commonly done several years ago. A lot of that data was actually second-line data, but now there's actually a fair amount of emerging data with docetaxel specifically. So it is an active class of agents, but it's not a home run. Any way to indirectly compare paclitaxel and docetaxel and NAB in pancreatic cancer? Well, it would definitely be indirect. This is the strongest data I've seen by far for any of those three agents, basically. And how do you think these data compare to giving GEM alone? Obviously, again, indirect comparison. It is indirect. Basically, the CR rate, the complete response rate on this trial, 
was as high as the overall response rate on any of the gem trials. So if this is real, it is very significant. The question is always is, was this basically a superb world-class investigator who knows a lot about the disease doing it, or could everybody do it? And would it hold up in phase three testing? What's going on in terms of phase three testing? So, you know, I don't actually know the answer to that, If whether it would go to a randomized phase two first, which is the way that the pancreatic task force wants to explore things. There's very little enthusiasm for looking at really great phase twos that are not randomized and going to a very large and expensive phase three. So my guess is it would have to go through a randomized phase two, but that is a guess. Seems like maybe to do more translational work, not just Spark, but I don't know, are there any other markers that look promising? So we just attended the state of the science meeting that the NCI throws in diseases we're having trouble with, and there was one in pancreas recently. And the problem is there are many things that have been proposed, but nothing that is primarily tumor-driving like KIT and GIST. But I definitely think this is the way of the future, even in difficult-to-treat diseases like pancreatic cancer. I mean, do we have much translational data? I mean, tumors that have been studied at all in pancreatic? I would say it's very modest compared to other disease sites. And then the last one was something I also thought was real interesting, and Eric Van Kutzen was part of this, and he's done a lot of work in terms of rash, although it's been more with, I think, cetuximab. But this was a paper looking at rash in terms of people getting gem and erlotinib. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, again, this is a study in pancreatic cancer that looked at gem plus erlotinib and then uh, second arm of bevacizumab. This was the AVITA trial. And what it was looking at is whether the development of a rash correlated with outcome. So it wasn't treatment to rash like some of his other work. And it wasn't, well, actually, that was just the major point of the actual trial. And so what they looked at is patients with no rash. And then they looked at patients with various grades of rash. And I guess we should say it was randomized phase three, also looking at the addition of BEV to that combination. To gemerlotinib, that's exactly right. right. And basically, a huge percentage of patients had rash, as you would expect. It was well above 60% on both arms. And basically, what they found out was that the patients who did develop a rash clearly had a better outcome. And that was not just in terms of disease control, although it was very marked in disease control. It was actually true in terms of even overall survival, where grade zero rash was five months and greater than grade two rash was basically eight and a half months. So they basically said that rash is a marker of efficacy, and this was true, of course, in both treatment arms. The problem is, as we have learned with colon cancer, it wasn't good enough to discriminate completely. And so patients with no rash still had a chance of benefit of drug. So you couldn't use no rash as either a way to escalate the drug to rash, although that's still a possible strategy, or you couldn't use it to stop the drugs knowing that it would be ineffective. All you could do is say, you have a rash, your chance of doing better is higher, which is great. Patients love that, especially when they have a bad rash, as justification for suffering the rash. Right, and also biology, too, because has this been looked at, rash, with pancreatic before? I don't know of any in rash. I mean, as you well know, you're aware of the epidermal growth factor receptor data in skin and colon cancer, and I have no reason to believe the mechanism is any different, but I'm not an expert in that area. What about the addition of BEV? It looked like there was some benefit there. I am not going to basically believe anything I see from a phase two when we already have cooperative group phase three trial suggesting there's not a benefit. Let's slip over to your favorite, GIST. 
Again, I think you told me down there in the gym that this wasn't that great a ASCO for GIST, but there were a couple papers that came out. I'm curious what you thought about. Yeah, so these papers were part of the BFR14 trial, which is a very bold study that we would never do in the United States. Basically, it took people who went on to imatinib for advanced disease who were doing well, they weren't progressing, and they were randomized at several points to stop drug or continue drug. And so they randomized them at one year, reported it, randomized them at three years, reported it. Now they have some very preliminary data from five years and reported it. And basically what they have now consistently shown at time points is if you stop drug, and I'm extrapolating from both studies, if you stop drug, even if you're in CR, you recur. So in other words, imatinib is indefinitely keeping you in remission, but it is not curing you. So that was one important point. It was very interesting that for the most part, they were able to salvage people who stopped, recurred, and went back on. They remained sensitive. And that was another really important point. And then I think one of the interesting things that duplicates my experience is I think the rate of recurrences falls off as people get way out there on imatinib. So you see, obviously, the median time to resistance is about two years. You see a lot of recurrences within three years. In my experience, after five years, you do not see a lot of recurrences. And so they also basically started reporting that the time to secondary resistance may be different as you get longer treatment with imatinib. The one conclusion they came out with that I do not agree is they basically said that CR is a prerequisite for long-term survival, excuse me, disease-free survival, and probably overall. I don't agree. If people have a very solid PR, I've had people now who are alive nine years later, your chances may be slightly higher of doing well, but I don't think it's a prerequisite for the same. You're like, I don't know whether maybe a patient who's in PR doing really well and maybe dies in a car accident, you know, look at their tumor and post-mortem to see, is it yep. really tumor? It has actually happened. We've had patients who had to go back for lung cancer surgery, et cetera. I only know of one patient of mine, and I think there have been a couple of reports of people who actually had pathologic CRs, if you will, but for the most part, the overwhelming majority have viable cancer. But yet, clinically, they stay stable. Absolutely. And I speculate, this is speculation, that they may be indefinitely in remission and live a normal lifespan. What about the, you know, we don't talk too much about biliary tract cancer, but there was an interesting paper presented. There was, and to be honest, it changed the standard of care. And so that is going to be one of the most important things to come out of this. And this was a trial that came out of the UK that basically looked at people with advanced biliary cancers with all the usual sites that you would expect. And they were randomized to gem alone or cisplatinum plus gem in one-to-one fashion. And I'm not going to bore you with all the demographics and things, but a couple interesting things emerged. Adding the cyst to gem was surprisingly non-toxic. They actually saw some more leukopenia, but they really didn't see any increase in serious events. I should also probably mention to your audience that it had a large number of patients, 400 patients. And the bottom line is they showed an improvement in median progression-free survival from six and a half months to almost eight and a half months which is 0.003 p-value and a hazard ratio of 0.72, so you know a one-third reduction. And remarkably, they showed an improvement in overall survival from 8.3 to almost 12 months. And that's obviously both statistically and clinically significant. So there's no doubt in my mind that gemcitabine cisplatin is the standard of care 
in all sites now in biliary malignancy. It's a little bit bothersome to me that they did it against single-agent GEM because a lot of people use GEM CAPE or GEM 5FU, and you can raise the question is, does the doublet have to be cisplatin? I don't know the answer, but now it would be very difficult to offer somebody 5FU instead. You know, it's interesting. I think this is the first chemo paper we've talked about, and there's so few chemo studies reported anymore. It's all biologics. Yep, and I'm sure it is the only phase three that you and I will be discussing for quite some time. Yep, so the final paper, again, biologics, this time HCC. We had a HCC think tank last year, and Melanie Thomas from MD Anderson was there, and she was talking about the work that was going on there, looking at bevacizumab and erlotinib and HCC, and now they reported some pretty interesting data. What did you think about it? Yeah, so as your audience well knows, hepatocellular carcinomas are extraordinarily vascular tumors reliant on a number of intracellular signaling pathways as well. And in general, it's a tough population to give chemotherapy to. You know, adromycin is a standard of care, but you can't give it with bad hepatic dysfunction. And so there was some rationale for giving Bev plus erlotinib. To be fair, there's some rationale for not doing so because there actually have been negative papers with certainly bevacizumab. But for that point, it was a reasonable thing to do. And so basically, this was a trial with a primary endpoint of patients alive and progression-free at four months. And it was a single-arm, open-label, phase two trial. Pretty typical population in terms of age. I would suggest that despite their comments, I found this to be a fairly healthy patient population with this particular disease type. Almost 90% were child's pew A, and half of them had an ECOG of zero, which is almost unheard of with hepatoma, in my opinion. So they must have really picked the cream of the crop, if you will. So the bottom line was they found in patients who hadn't had prior treatment that the median progression-free survival was nine months, and overall survival was 16 months. And that's actually very impressive. And interestingly, though the numbers were extremely small, They actually treated patients with prior serafinib as well, which certainly would be the standard of care frontline now, and found a slight decrement in those numbers, but not much. It was still high double digits for overall survival. And basically, they were very excited, as you might conclude or think, and they basically did propose a randomized phase two study should be done and is being done in the U.S., and that's going to compare erlotinib, bevacizumab to serafinib. That's exactly right. What about the combination of the three? I would have some concerns myself because of the toxicity profile of serafinib, particularly with the erlotinib. Yeah. But certainly, the whole concept of eliminating chemotherapy and tossing in a lot of biologics with multi-path inhibition is very popular right now. It's an interesting thing to do. It's definitely a tough disease. I mean, we spent the day going through cases of theirs, and she actually presented a patient who was on this study. And wow, it's a tough disease. With the, you know, it is. I mean, with really the comorbidities is. that these patients have, it's really a problem. I mean, they presented patients who had good response in the tumor and then would die of cirrhosis. Yeah, well, and that's actually extraordinarily common. But it bothered me because they basically says poor prognosis patients were well represented in this study. Yeah. And I don't totally agree. So I wouldn't want your listeners to rush out and give their child's B-minus patients this combination. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, hopefully they're going to come up with some new stuff that might be even better. But there's that optimism again. Absolutely. And you know what? I share your optimism at this point.